I grew up two blocks away from John Wayne Gacy. That's always a fun icebreaker to use on first dates. I'll usually get the, oh, that killer clown who murdered a dozen people, to which I'll usually reply by saying that he wasn't actually a killer clown, but instead, a killer who would sometimes entertain as a clown at birthday parties and events. And he didn't kill a dozen people. He killed at least 33 teenage boys, duh. It was usually at that point in the conversation where I'd realize I was alone again. But this episode isn't about the history of John Wayne Gacy. But for the sake of context, between 1972 and 1978, all of Gacy's murders were committed inside his Nord Park Township home. He'd lure in teenage boys, who'd usually be runaways or looking for work, in which he'd strangle and rape them. He buried 26 bodies in the crawl space of his home, three bodies in his backyard, and dumped four in the nearby Desplaines River. He was convicted in 1980 and executed in 1994. His final spoken words were, Kiss my ass. And yes, Gacy became known as the Killer Clown because of his work at fundraising events, parades, and children's parties, where he would dress as his character, Pogo the Clown. But no, he did not run around killing people dressed as him. What I'm trying to say is, there is a difference between a Killer Clown and a killer who happens to be a clown. Yes, I sat alone during lunch in high school. I moved in with my grandparents to Nord Park Township when I was about five years old. I couldn't tell you how I found out about the Gacy house, nor could I say how I learned about the grisly details about what went on there between 1972 and 1978. Looking back, it was just something you knew, like a new computer with preloaded software. You turn it on and it's all just there. Of course, the original home had been torn down since the investigation, and a new home had been built on the property. But even then, you couldn't help but wonder who would actually want to live there. And with at least 33 young lives unmercifully taken on that property, and 26 literally buried within the walls and soil, I mean, it just had to be haunted, right? These are the questions that would run through our young minds as neighborhood friends and I would slowly ride our bikes past the Gacy home. We'd never see a soul enter or leave and it was always extremely dark and quiet. I guess every neighborhood has that house, but it's a much eerier feeling when facts fuel your imagination, more than just imagination alone. And curiosity always got the best of us, because come Halloween night, we'd always find ourselves on the porch, gazing through the windows, ringing the doorbell, knocking the door, because even though our pillowcases and pails were bursting with candy, we weren't going to call it a night without at least a trick or treat from the home of John Wayne Gacy. I mean, this is exactly what Halloween is about, right? Now, we did this for years, and I truly wish I could tell you how one Halloween night we were met with a bevy of angry spirits taken before their time, or a creepy killer clown answered the door, or we heard supernatural wailing from inside. But we never did. We were told almost every year that an old woman lived therein. She simply didn't want to be bothered. Was this rational explanation deflating to our young imaginations? Well, yeah. Which is why as time went on, it just became a house. Something horrible happened there a long time ago. And that was that. 
and even though I'm now an adult and have since moved away, I do wonder from time to time if there are still kids there that slowly ride their bikes past that house, letting their imagination get the best of them, wondering what possible horrors still happen inside due to the looming shadow of this serial killer clown and the chilling impact that he made in this neighborhood. Welcome to another edition of It's Alive Podcast Shock Sessions. Brief horror-related topics, individually produced and presented by myself, or my equally eerie entertaining co-host, Eric. I just shared sort of a trick-or-treat tradition from my childhood in the form of the John Wayne Gacy house. And when you're a kid, that's what Halloween's all about, isn't it? Innocent mischief. R-rated horror movies, staying out late, dressing up as whatever you'd like with a backpack of toilet paper, maybe some silly stringer eggs, and of course getting a bunch of free candy along the way. It's like Vegas, for children. But what's the Halloween scene like today? Wait, hold on, don't answer that. Have you guys heard of Trunk-or-Treat? A lot of towns and suburbs are doing this now. It's usually held in the school or church parking lots. Kids safely go from car to car and collect treats in a safe, parental-controlled environment. You know everyone, and your entire Halloween is monitored by mom or dad. Sounds nice, I guess. I mean, if you're a parent, maybe. But this was created out of fear. Fear for the children. When you were a kid, did your parents ever check your candy haul when you were done trick-or-treating? If so, what were they looking for? Something along the lines of razor blades or poison, right? Watch the news this Halloween season. They always make a point that hospitals will be open and ready to give free x-rays to your kid's Halloween candy haul. Why? Because of paranoia. Once again, fear for the children. I mean, I understand that we were raised not to take candy from strangers, and it's kind of ironic that Halloween is a holiday where we're encouraged to do the exact opposite. But where did this sort of mania begin? In every neighborhood, was there really some lunatic happily shoving razor blades into fun-sized Snickers and dumping rat poison into your chiclets? Or did paranoia, rumors, and hearsay turn facts into some faceless child-killing maniac that cheerfully concocts these murder treats every Halloween night? Did fearful, paranoid parents change the presentation of modern-day Halloween to an entire generation of children? 
Or has it become unfortunately common that within our neighborhoods could hide a monster, scarier than any R-rated slasher, hiding under the cloak of safety that only home can bring us? I'll tell you what, it's getting pretty dark out there. Why don't you come in from the cold? Get comfortable, take off that plastic mask, set down your pillowcase, but don't eat your haul just yet, because you might first want to hear tonight's shock session. Deadly Candy. Jenna, imagine taking your kids out trick-or-treating in a nice neighborhood, like this neighborhood on the city's north side, and then you find out that somebody put a sharp metal object inside a piece of Halloween candy. Two area moms say that's exactly what happened to them. A big sewing needle. It was a pretty good size sewing needle. She says she threw the candy bar away and then took the needle and wrapper to the Madison Township Fire Station. I've been in the fire service for a little over 20 years, and it's the first time where I've had first-hand experience. It's just chilling. Morgan County Sheriff Bob Downey says his office is investigating. Pretty scary stuff. Yes, it is. I mean, every kid on this road goes over there. I mean, it could have been anybody's kid, and it's not right. So police say it's always very important to closely inspect all your kids' Halloween candy. If it doesn't look just right, just throw it away. Hey, a very important warning for parents. Some treats could put your young ghouls and goblins at risk when they head out tonight. How to keep your kids safe. The Oregon Poison Center is reminding parents to be on the lookout today for any type of candy that may appear suspicious. Candy that kids come home with after trick-or-treating that has open wrappers or wrappers that appear to have been tampered with are best to be avoided. If you see loose candy or loose gummy bears or loose cookies, then um, common sense says you probably don't want to let your kids eat them if you don't know exactly who made them and where they came from. Tales of black-hearted madmen dueling out poison Halloween candy to unsuspecting little tykes have been around for decades, and every year sees the same flurry of activity in response to such rumors. Radio, TV, and newspapers issue dark warnings about tampered candy, and suggest taking the little ones to parties, including the trunk-or-treat events I previously mentioned, instead of collecting goodies door-to-door. Even Ann Landers published a column in 1995, warning us against the supposed mad poisoner, saying, In recent years, there have been reports of people with twisted minds putting razor blades in poison and taffy apples in Halloween candy. Wait, recent years? Poison? It's a sadness that a holiday so thoroughly and greedily enjoyed by kids is being sanitized out of existence in the name of safety. Sadder, Still, as there appears to be little reason for it. Though evidence of a genuine Halloween poisoning is yet to be found, I've uncovered a few isolated incidents, initially reported as random poisonings that, upon further investigation, turned out to be something else entirely. By far the most famous case of Halloween candy poisoning was the murder of eight-year-old Timothy Mark O'Brien at the hands of his father, Ronald Clark O'Brien, in Houston, Texas child died at 10 p.m. on Halloween night, 1974, as a result of eating cyanide-laced pixie sticks acquired while trick-or-treating. To make his act appear more like a random madman, O'Brien also gave poison pixie sticks to his daughter and three other children. By a kind of stroke of fate, none of the other children actually ate the candy. The prosecution proved the father had purchased cyanide 
and had accompanied the group of children on their door-to-door -door mission. None of the homes visited that night were giving out pixie sticks. Young Mark's life was recently insured for a large sum of money, and collecting this policy has always been pointed to as the motive behind his murder. Though the case was circumstantial, as no one saw the father poison the candy, or slip the pixie sticks into the boy's bag, Ronald O'Brien was convicted of murder in May 1975. He received the death sentence and was executed by lethal injection on March 31st, 1984. Not on the poetically just October 31st, as often recounted in retellings of this case. Sensationalism is a reoccurring theme tonight. The O'Brien murder was an attempt to use well-known urban legend to cover up the premeditated murder of one particular child. Note that for this explanation of the boy's murder to have been believed, the legend had to have been in wide circulation even by 1974. Though cold-blooded and horrible to contemplate, this crime still does not qualify as genuine Halloween poisoning, because there was nothing random about Timothy O'Brien's death. Another attempt to obscure the circumstances surrounding a little boy's death by invoking this legend took place in Detroit on November 2nd, 1970. A five-year-old, Kevin Tostin, lapsed into a coma and died four days later of a heroin overdose. Analysis of some of his Halloween candy showed it had been sprinkled with heroin. This case was widely reported as a real-life example of Halloween sadism. Not nearly so widely circulated, though were the results of the police investigation, which concluded that the boy had accidentally gotten to his uncle's heroin stash and poisoned himself, and that the family had sprinkled heroin on the child's candy after the fact to protect his uncle. What initially appeared to be a random non-Halloween poisoning attempt aimed at children occurred in Emerson, New Jersey on October 8, 1988. The New York Times said traces of deadly poison strictine were found in a box of sun-kissed dinosaur fruit snacks purchased on September 3rd in a New Jersey grocery store. The suspicious powder the state police lab had initially labeled strychnine was retested by the Food and Drug Administration and was simply found to be cornstarch. The New York Times printed the updated version of the story on October 14, 1988, but not before the manufacturer of the said fruit snacks destroyed 9,400 cases of the product company maintained that the negative publicity surrounding this story had an adverse effect on their image. Though it's impossible to accurately measure such things, I believe their claim has merit. It's human nature to recall the destruction of the candy, but it was a false alarm, and it's only reasonable to assume that their image was somewhat damaged. Those initial, oh my god, news stories do a fair deal of damage because bits of them stay in the average person's memory, whereas retractions or follow-ups don't. These facts don't get discarded when new information comes along. After Halloween in 1994, a three-year-old New Britain, Connecticut child was diagnosed as suffering from cocaine poisoning, though he'd been sick earlier in the day and also had a habit of putting anything he found in his mouth. The finger was immediately pointed at tampered Halloween candy, with all the usual attendant media hysteria. More than a week later, the local police announced that no traces of cocaine or any other drugs had been found on the leftover pieces of candy that was supposed to have been poisoned. Another suspected Halloween poisoning occurred in Washington, D.C. in 1991. 31-year-old Kevin Michael Cherry of Montgomery County coincidentally died of heart failure after eating some of his child's Halloween loot. 
As told in the November 2nd Washington Times, anxious parents dumped pounds of their kids' candy before the true cause of death was determined by autopsy. Seven-year-old Ferdinand Seaquick of San Jose, California, collapsed on October 31st, 1996, after eating candy and cookies he was given while trick-or-treating. Initial urine analysis at the hospital revealed traces of cocaine. Subsequent tests done by outside labs came back negative, and it was further concluded that the initial test results were wrong. But this conclusion was reached at least a day after the media had picked up on the story, and it scared the hell out of everyone yet again with tales of a poisoner on the loose. An odd act of randomness occurred in the town of Hercules, California, near San Francisco in the year 2000. Some trick-or-treaters came home with little packets of marijuana, done up to look like miniature Snickers bars. Parents of the kids who received this quickly contacted the police, who just as quickly traced the giveaway to a particular house. There, a mystified homeowner was confronted about the find. Police investigated and were satisfied the homeowner had no knowledge of the special contents of certain bars that were handed out that night. The marijuana packets dressed up to look like Snickers bars had landed in Hercules' dead letter office, because whoever tried to mail a package containing them either didn't use enough postage or had listed an incorrect address. A postal employee, which happens to be the mystified homeowner that handed it out, kept the candy for his own use. He brought it home to give it out on Halloween, thinking the Snickers bars were... Well, Snickers bars. The trick ended up being on him. Putting the crazed Halloween poisoner story to rest can be quite the task. As was outlined in a November 9, 1989 article in the Los Angeles Times, the following is an excerpt from an interview with Joel Best, a professor of sociology at the California State University in Fresno, who has been trying to debunk this urban legend for more than 30 years. We checked major newspapers from throughout the country from 1958 through 1988, he said, assuming that any story this horrible would certainly be well reported. They found a total of 78 cases and two deaths. The two deaths Dr. Best was referring to were the O'Brien murder and the accidental poisoning of Kevin Tostin. Further checking proved that almost all the 78 cases were pranks. The deaths were tragically real, but they too were misrepresented in the beginning. The pranks, he said, were all kids. After years of hearing similar stories, inserting needles or razor blades into fruit, not realizing, or maybe realizing, how much they frightened their whole town. Best has tried mightily over the years to destroy this particular myth, but obviously to no avail. It's the old problem of trying to prove a negative. Sad to say, foreign objects hidden in Halloween loot are part of the trick-or-treat experience, but these incidents are few and far between, and our fear of them is greatly out of proportion with the likelihood of them occurring. Acting on this out-of-control fear, sometimes hospitals and police departments have taken to x-raying bags of Halloween plunder, as noted in the October 31, 1993 Washington Post. In the 10 years the National Confectioners Association has run its Halloween hotline, the group has yet to verify an instance of tampering, said spokesman Bill Shahan. These myths become truisms. So, why every Halloween do we think Little Billy's Milky Way or Sally's Twix are chock full of razor-sharp objects and deadly poison? The same reason everyone thinks John Wayne Gacy ran around murdering people left and right dressed as a clown. Sensationalism 
hearsay, ignorance. Facts get buried, but as long as bodies do too, I feel like this trope is going to be around for as long as Halloween exists. Halloween is the time of year where fear is something to behold, but it's supposed to be through plastic skeletons, severed latex limbs, and ghost stories to tell in the dark, not through the treats that come with tricking. To be informed and rational is key. Don't sanitize in the name of safety, especially when the danger is as transparent as the ghost on your front lawn. There you have it, the danger of the Halloween candy debacle seemingly unmasked. But regardless of the facts I presented, what do you think? Do you believe Halloween brings imminent danger and should be safely monitored by parents or adult guidance at all times? Is the option of x-raying candy, trunk or treating, not hurting anybody, so we should just go ahead and continue it? If you have kids, how do you celebrate Halloween? Is it any different from how you yourself celebrated when you were a child? Please let me know by commenting on this episode at itsalivepodcast.com, reaching out through our Facebook page, or tweeting us at itsalivepod. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. I'd like to thank David Mickelson from Snopes.com, as well as Ethan Trex from MentalFloss.com, and lastly, the 2014 documentary Killer Legends for helping me in my research. As always, my co-host Eric and I will be broadcasting from beyond the grave in the realm of horror pop culture on the It's Alive podcast, in which you can listen to us at itsalivepodcast.com and on iTunes. And with that, our shock session has come to an end. You're more than welcome to bust open that pillowcase and start working your way through that Halloween candy. Just make sure to leave some for me. No pixie sticks, though. I, uh, I just don't trust them. I mean, you never know, right? Stay tuned for more shock sessions, striking the dark days between regular episodes of the It's Alive podcast. I'm your host, Chris, and I hope this Halloween the only scary thing your candy brings you are tummy aches and cavities. Have a great night, and to our loyal listeners, always remember, stay stay alive. alive.